Hello everyone. We will start in a few moments. We'll just give it time for everyone to join. Welcome to today's webinar, Epilogue to a Crisis. My name is Romley Douglas and I will be your moderator. Before I hand over the mic to Irving, I have a few housekeeping items to cover about this presentation. All participants will be muted during the presentation. We'd love to hear from you during today's presentation and be answering questions at the end of the session. If you have a question, please send it through the Ask a Question tab, which is at the bottom of your player. If we don't get to your question during today's webinar, we'll be sure to follow up afterwards. So, without further ado, I'd like to kick things off by welcoming Irving. Thank you. Well, thank you, Romilly. And thank you all for taking time out of the middle of your day or the end of your day or the beginning of your day, wherever you're located for participating in this program. I'm always flattered and uh, amazed at the range of geographic locations from which we attract our audience. Um, this uh, title, this presentation uh, is designed to focus on issues that relate to the long-term care story that's playing out in the post-COVID era in the post-pandemic time period. Uh, I'm going to uh, focus on uh, how we got here, what the situation is, and leave some time at the end for what I hope will be uh, your questions, good questions. Uh, we've had terrific questions in prior webinars. So let me launch in here and talk about long-term care. So, and of course, things have to work in order for that to happen. Um, there we go. So the plot for this storyline, this, I've talked about an epilogue, but the plot for the basic storyline is that nursing homes or congregate care homes or residential care facilities, depending on where you're located, what the label is, they came out of poor houses. Uh, they were designed to be um, replacements to poor houses. Um, over time, the plot line goes, those nursing homes, congregate care centers, care homes, they got old and we stopped building new ones, especially in the United States, as well as in the UK and other locations. Um, then nobody wanted to work there. And I'll talk more in detail about that. Um, and the government regulators said, hire more. Uh, so we paid the people that work in these congregate care centers poorly. 
and then we told them to do even more. Um, so you can see that this plot line is full of contradictions, paradoxes, and conflicting intentions. And then we had COVID. COVID was an enormous jolt to the system. And I'm gonna show you a little bit about that. Uh, here are the infections that occurred in the US uh, in nursing homes. Uh, this data is from CMS. Uh, and as we can see, uh, it was the infections were very, very uh, serious from November through um, the beginning of March in 2021. Uh, and now recently infections have gone up a little bit further uh, with the Delta variant spreading throughout the communities in which these nursing centers are located. Uh, deaths, equally disturbing numbers, uh, very significant rate of death associated with COVID-19 in nursing homes. Um, the uh, situation in nursing homes has gotten significantly better, but again, Delta has, uh, has, has spread in the communities where the nursing homes are located. Uh, the staff and employees in these nursing centers live in the communities and they uh, almost invariably have a positive, have, a, have an effect on the spread of the disease in nursing centers. So now we run into the epilogue. Well, what's an epilogue? It's some sort of afterward, it's some sort of finale or supplement to the storyline. And I think in order to properly draft it, we have to consider that it is indeed a crisis uh, and that the epilogue is to this crisis. Uh, so a crisis is an adverse event. Certainly we'd all, all agree that the pandemic is that. And it's a tremendous impact, has had a tremendous impact on the brand and the sector in its entirety. So the storyline continues. Uh, the epilogue in congregate long-term care certainly will continue. There are market segments that I would say are durable. That is to say, there are individuals and situations where the services of uh, long-term care, congregate long-term care center will be necessary. Um, in skilled nursing, in nursing homes, uh, basically it's those who have no choice. Uh, and these people who have no choice are individuals who are generally uh, poor, uh, generally very sick, and they have neurological disorders that require intensive nursing and personal care support, uh, or they have and or they have memory loss or cognitive impairment, which is not dementia. That's what the SIND is. These individuals will continue to require congregate care and no amount of rhetorical pleading or wishful thinking among others will change that fact. It's a epidemiological fact in the populations, Western populations. These are diseases of the that are associated with aging. They come with aging and we have an aging society. And so we're going to experience a higher incidence and overall burden of these types of diseases as we progress, especially over the next eight to 12 years. So these are the folks who will continue to need or require nursing homes 
as well as assisted living and home care. In other programs, I've talked about the market share between and among these various segments. And if you have questions about that, I'd welcome the opportunity to respond to them. As a strategist, I wanna focus on uh, congregate care right now, and we'll talk a little bit about uh, other forms of congregate care, but specifically the most intense, generally referred to as nursing homes, nursing care, uh, care homes, and uh, skilled nursing. So the characters in this story, in this long-term care story, and there's a set of characters, we can weave a plot with them. The first is the markets, and the markets are the people who need or may require, need, currently need or may require congregate long-term care in the future. There's the physical structure to which these individuals are referred or the physical structures where they seek uh, residential care. There's the programmed structure, what we do for with collaboratively on their behalf inside of these structures. Then there's technology and information, what little of it there is inside of these structures. And then there's workforce. We'll be drilling down into this significantly. In econometric terms, the workforce in long-term care is the quote-unquote means of production. It's how we produce the care that's delivered in these congregate care centers. Um, talk more about that in a moment. There's the culture, which are the unspoken norms that bind our behaviors together within these structures. Here are the outcomes. What are the results of what we do? And we'll talk about that as well. And then there's the economics. Most people flee to one or two or three of these subjects based on their interests, based on the topic at hand. But all of these, are critical characters in the long-term care story. And if we're going to approach uh, the epilogue to this crisis, we need to take all of these characters into account. We need to make sure that each of them comes onto the stage afterward for a bow when the play is successful. So where are we in the congregate housing and long-term care markets? Here we are. And as you can see, if it, as you track with these numbers, uh, this uh, data is from NIC, probably some of the best data available in the congregate long-term care sector in the US. Languisson in the UK has similar data. But as you can see here, and this data is pretty consistent, the COVID um, pandemic has dropped the demand right off the cliff. Um, it seems to be coming back in certain areas. Um, some of the comeback story is wishful thinking, but in general, the pandemic has seriously negatively impacted the uh, demand, the occupancy utilization, if you will, of congregate long-term care housing in the United States. Some of it will come back and I've done a prior webinar on what segments will come back first and how they'll come back. Uh, I would refer you to that if that's of interest to you. But this is only one of the characters in this story, the markets and where we are now. 
this was to be predicted. Uh, this was not a surprise. The uh, various forces in the plot had been conspiring for some time to reduce the demand specifically in nursing homes in both the US and the UK, reduce demand for nursing homes through regulation, through preferred programs and regulatory structures, payment options that would uh, encourage the utilization of home and community-based services versus quote unquote institutional care and congregate care. And those effects pre-COVID were pretty effective. As you can see here for the past 35 years, utilization in the 65 plus age category, which is a pretty big lump and not a way I would recommend looking at markets in general, but this was the available data that we had through CMS, has gone from 5.2% to 2.35%. That's a pretty significant drop in the utilization of a category of service among a particular market segment. And the reasons for that are, are manifold, but the overall demographic of demand in aged care services is driven by the number of age qualified individuals. And as we can see here from this table, this is the United States uh, live births from 19, uh, from, I'm sorry, from 1900 to, nine, from, to 2010. And as we can see from 1925 to roughly 1940, there was a significant dip in the uh, live births in the United States. This demographic dip has had a significant impact on the demographic demand for age qualified housing and services. And I've inserted some lines and boxes here to show that in 2022, if you were born in 1935, you will be 87 years of age. And as you can see, we're still in the trough of that demographic dip. It begins to emerge roughly around 2030, 2035, where we'll see an increase in demand based on demographics. The type of demand, again, uh, we've talked about that in other seminars, other uh, programs, the type of demand will be quite different. And we'll touch upon that when we talk about uh, the uh, next steps in this epilogue. The next character in our play is structure, the physical structures. And this article that appeared in the New Yorker magazine, the American nursing home is a design failure, is cited in the bibliography that's attached to the program that you will receive for signing up. So you don't have to scramble to find it at this point, but the structure of the American nursing home is, it is terrible. Um, the, the property, plant, and equipment, which was the original PPE, um, most nursing homes were built between 1960 and 1975. What do I mean by most? Over 70%. They were modeled on hospitals, and they were built with the same cookie-cutter, uh, modern-era nod to efficiency, attempting to create spoken uh, hub-and-spoke uh, distribution of the patients in these buildings. Um, they were uh, different from assisted living. Assisted living is much newer, didn't reach the United States 
until the early 1990s, uh, but there hasn't been new construction in nursing homes in the United States since roughly 1985-1987, and that's in part due to conditions of conditions sort uh, of certificate of need restrictions that are almost ubiquitous throughout the United States. So there's barriers to building new in nursing homes, um, which has been a boon in many ways to assisted living. Since the late, since the mid 70s, early 80s, there's been little or no reinvestment in nursing centers. It's true that there have been upgrades and paint jobs and new awnings, but there's been very little reinvestment uh, major capital improvements. And the reason for that is most of the capitalization in the sector has been extractive. It's been built around the real estate that undergirds the properties. Uh, and the federal government has withdrawn the kind of fiscal support needed to make low cost loans available for major physical uh, revisions, major physical re-engineering, like new HVAC systems, new physical entrances, uh, new windows, um, which all bear upon the COVID pandemic, as we know now that the, uh, the microbe, the, the SARS-CoV-2 microbe spread through aerosols, aerosols that were aided and embedded by the limited ancient HVAC systems in these buildings. And the result, yuck. <laughs> uh, who, you know, I've probably been in 3,000 nursing homes around the United States and another 100 or so in the UK, as well as elsewhere in the world. And I can tell you that uh, I wouldn't want to stay in a Hilton that hadn't been renovated for 40 or 50 years, would you? Uh, they are. Um, too often very grim. So what do we need? First of all, we need a much wider variety of physical structures. Right now, the payment systems, uh, especially in the United States, conspire to restrict the type of center where an individual can live and receive care. So those restrictions need to be carefully combed through, eliminated, and or modified without restricting safety, and that can be done. Uh, we need large, newer college dormitory type uh, buildings with attractive common spaces. We need medium-sized buildings like the current assisted living residences, which in the United States, they average about 70 units per operation. And we need small, like McMansions, uh, for a small, unrelated or related group of individuals uh, think golden girls. We need those kinds of structures as well. The physical structures are benchmarked, but there's little or no qualitative or quantitative analysis of the suitability of these structures. Are these structures really fit for purpose, as we say in the UK? In too many cases, they are not, but we don't know. There's been no predictive anal analysis done of what consumers or their families want uh, that we can find. We're keen to find the sponsor for such a, such a research project, uh, but there's been no predictive uh, analytics done. 
there's been little or no qualitative analysis of consumer, customer, family satisfaction in long-term, in congregate long-term care, especially nursing homes. We've got caps and other things in hospitals, but we don't have that in long-term care. Um, the real estate that undergirds the sector uh, can be both a positive or a negative. Uh, the real estate can allow equity investment, which is far more um, far more easily handled by the sector than the types of debt investment that's simply not available to many nursing centers. Uh, we need IT infrastructure, and, and that's a capital expense. Um, I consider congregate long-term care in the United States and in the UK, it is the land that IT left behind. It's embarrassing, and I'll talk further about that. Basically, we need access to capital. And what that means is we need a new federal Hill-Burton Act. We need ways for private and public developers to get access to low interest uh, guaranteed debt where they can reinvest in a meaningful way or redevelop or rebuild or build new uh, in meaningful ways, small model, medium model, and big model. Um, why don't we get this? Well, because frankly, we've been too competitive. We're still, the sector is so hyper competitive. We're busy eating each other's lunch. We've focused on profit at the expense, I would say, of the future strategically. And the other issue that needs to get brought up is that I say here sarcastically that it pays to confuse the consumer. Well, one of the things that we need to understand is that consumers don't understand the taxonomy or the structure of congregate long-term care. They don't understand the difference between a rehab center and an assisted living residence, between an independent living residence and a special specialty care center. They don't understand these artificial distinctions they don't understand them, frankly, because we have not uh, we have not committed ourselves to educating our markets. The labeling is confusing, and that has made this situation, this epilogue, all the more confusing. And we, as a collective, we don't bargain together. We don't. We haven't, at least until the pandemic hit. We haven't collectively bargained and lobbied effectively for the issues that are meaningful and substantive to the sector. More on that. Now to the programs, to the internal programs. So as those of you who work in the sector will know that the program into which uh, Mrs. Stackpole, my 87 year old pretend mother who's in a nursing home, the program that she receives in Boston will be profoundly different from the program she will receive in Dallas, which will again be very, very different from the program she might get receive in San Diego. Why is that? She needs the same thing, but the programs are highly fragmented. One of the reasons for that is that the coverage varies. The, the programs, the insurance programs, the intermediary programs that my mother may qualify for in one place 
might be very different from what she qualifies for in another place and what I as her uh, adult child or what her daughter-in-law may learn about might be different in all three locations. It's crazy. It's a, the graphic here is an attempt to depict the complete mishigas that consumers face when they turn to long-term care and attempt to figure out how to meet the needs of their aging parents or significant others. There's home, there's issues in the communities, home-based care, congregate care, nursing care. How did it get this complicated? Well, my theory is that the government and the regulators, all very well-intentioned perhaps, were attempting to uh, control for fraud, were attempting to create audit trails, and so they created silos and never rationalized, to use uh, W. Edwards Deming's term, term, they never rationalized those systems between and among themselves. So there's little or no collaboration, cooperation, or rationalization across the system. And if the consumers, our very confused consumer in this graphic, if she doesn't know what she wants or needs, why aren't we teaching her? Why aren't we investing in communications and education around the needs for our aging population? So what do we need? We need, first of all, we need screening and triage. We need a way to screen individuals as to what they need at some entry point in their trajectory, in their journey, in their storyline. What do they need? Do they need behavioral health services? Do they need domestic services? Do they just need grocery delivery? Do they need someone to call and prompt them from time to time? We don't do anything like that. We need to fit the, pro fit the person to the program not to the payment. We need to look past the payment silos and look carefully at what the individual needs. Around the country in the post-pandemic era, there are individuals and organizations, and I'm happy to be part of some of these initiatives, that are attempting to create things that are so sensible as beds that aren't, beds in congregate care centers that aren't limited to a particular payment class. In other words, beds that can be used by individuals who need the bed rather than only by individuals who meet certain uh, payment stipulations. And we need clear choices. Long-term care, the, 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 the overall sector of long-term care is more complicated then credit default swaps. And if you haven't seen the movie, The Big Short, uh, I commend it to you. And indeed, long-term care, finding our way through the maze of long-term care is more complicated than that. Technology and information. Um, there was a public outcry at the beginning of the pandemic about individuals who couldn't get information couldn't get information, we were immediate lockdowns as a result of the pandemic, and families, regulators couldn't get information. Well, they couldn't get information because, as they say in Texas, that dog don't hunt. There had been no investment in information infrastructure. In fact, 
long-term care centers are specifically excluded from major legislation that invests in healthcare infrastructure. Why that is, I can only speculate and it's not flattering. We need to solve that, we need to resolve it. And in some ways it's better because we can leapfrog, we can leapfrog right into newer technology. But as I say here on the bottom, Kroger's, the local department stores, the local grocery stores have better technology than almost every congregate care center. So what do we need? First of all, we need to care more about granny than we do about tomatoes, which means we need to invest. We need to invest in the IT infrastructure in congregate care. And part of that investment is individuals in the sector, uh, operations managers, administrators, executive directors, CEOs, we need to demand interoperability. We need to demand inexpensive, uh, easily uh, applied uh, tools within our congregate care centers that will actually improve management, improve efficiency, improve oversight. So, and, and you know, one of my favorite topics is personal emergency response systems. Everybody says, oh, we've got purse, we've got personal emergency response systems. Well, these were built on legacy hospital based systems and telephone systems. We need far more sophisticated systems. We need an internet of long-term care. You've heard of the internet of things, IOT. We need an internet of long-term care. We need electronic health records. I'm not eschewing things like uh, pay, uh, uh, PPC or other matrix or other uh, nursing home based electronic health records. The problem is that those systems are headed in the same way as hospital-based systems, Cerner and Epic. They don't talk to each other, and that has created major problems. News article just today about a study showing how the reason, the reason that information was so slow to start from hospitals at the beginning of the pandemic was because of these conflicts. We have an opportunity to start right, to do it right from the get-go. We need interoperability. I'm doing a project under a CARES Act grant right now in Rhode Island. Trying to find interoperability solutions is a nightmare. Um, and we need to look at things like ambient assisted living. So ambient assisted living simply means that the tools of surveillance are placed wherever mom lives, wherever grandma lives. And we use those tools to keep an eye on grandma. That's what ambient assisted living means. And the technologies are available and readily available. We have a, my company has a patent in this area. So, and I'm not the most technologically sophisticated person. If we can do it, uh, it can certainly be done on a broader scale. People, the means of production from an econometric point of view is an, the, one of the most important characters in this play, in this storyline for long-term care. Who cares? Well, paid and non-paid caregivers. Who wants to work in long-term care? Well, as, we'll see, as we will see, uh, the number of people working has dropped 
And we need to be far more rigorous about locating, identifying, recruiting, and retaining. And I've got some thoughts in that regard. What are the sources of these individuals today? And what are the sources of these individuals tomorrow? Well, the pre-COVID, the best data was from the Kaiser Family Foundation, which suggested that there were about four and a half million long-term care workers in the United States. As I said earlier, NHS has some uh, analogous information in the UK. Most pre-COVID, most of the people working in long-term care work in, worked in uh, congregate centers, skilled nursing, nursing homes, and assisted living residences with about 25%, I'm sorry, 33% working in home health. Post-COVID, and when we do this measure in 2022, I'm sure those that pie chart will be changed, but these were the facts pre-COVID. And then the pandemic hit, and this is data from the Labor Department, and as you can see, nursing and residential care facilities employment through February, uh, since February 2020 has plummeted, whereas all non-farm employment has recovered very effective, effectively. Now, I don't doubt for a minute that everybody here who's an operations manager, um, however many are here, that you are experiencing this at a very painful level, that the nursing and residential workforce has not only decreased, but it is also becoming very difficult to recruit. Why? One of the reasons is absolutely compensation. We have, uh, through politics and poor, um, poor lobbying um, and a variety of other factors, we have consistently and regularly underpaid our direct care workforce in long-term care. This graph says it says a lot about that. And indeed, this is a big issue. We must find ways to pay what these jobs are worth. We're migrating quickly from a service-based economy to a care economy, where care provision will become a dominant element of the economy overall in all of the OECD countries. You just need to look at Japan to see this. But let's talk specifically about the workforce in long-term care and what might be possible. So who wants to work in long-term care? First of all, it's clear from the data, and I'm just gonna go back here and show that this data has a bottom, that it's clear that there are people who really do want to work in long-term care. It will take a generation at least, and I would say two generations, to remove the stigma associated with congregate long-term care. That is a significant undertaking that needs to recruit the participation and the compensation of interested parties in that endeavor. And I have some suggestions about that as well. But we need to work hard to remove this stigma. The other thing that we need to do is we need to be far more rigorous about looking at why people take jobs versus why they stay in jobs versus why they leave jobs. 
There was very elegant research done in 2016 and some that continues to be done uh, at Brandeis and other, other locations, UMass Boston, about why people leave. But all three of those issues, why people take the job, why people stay in the job, and why people leave the job, need to be far more rigorously analyzed so that we can take steps today to concretely improve recruitment, retention, and understand why people leave when they leave so that we can address the issues, if any can be addressed, uh, inside our organizations from a management point of view. We need a federal long-term care jobs act. We need a program that will stimulate recruiting, compensating, and supporting long-term care workers throughout the United States. I suggest that since there are a core of at least 10 million un- or underemployed individuals in the United States, we could start there. And we can indeed screen for things like loyalty and compassion and sensitivity. Uh, and those screenings can produce interest and motivation as well as begin to chip away at the legacy negative cultural metaphor about long-term care. We could use existing federal training centers. There's no law against this. Uh, federal training centers are deployed uh, throughout the United States. They're supported under a different title in the federal code, and they can indeed be training centers where technical training, on-hands training, uh, hands-on training can be developed for those people who screen into the Long-Term Care Jobs Act uh, workforce. We need to subsidize salaries and benefits at a federal level. The vast majority of individuals who are employed in caring roles, caregiving roles today, are what's called ALICE, asset limited, income constrained, and employed. These are poor people who are within 200% of the federal poverty limit. They're generally women, and they're very often working single mothers. There are ways we can support their migration into our workforce, and there are ways we can incentivize them to stay in our workforce. These things can only occur with coordinated um, nationwide effort. And we need to reinstate the H1A visa category for caregivers. This program worked beautifully to bring United, bring tens of thousands of nurses into the United States during the late 80s. The program was disbanded, I think in 1992 or three, ended uh, maybe later than that. But the bottom line is there is a precedence for creating a category for nursing and other qualified caregivers to bring them into the United States. This is absolutely a high priority because the situation, the demographic situation isn't going to get any better. We're migrating toward a care-based economy, but there's not gonna be anybody there
to care. So let's talk briefly about the character of culture in long-term care. Right now, the culture is um, embattled, I would say. There is a core of individuals who have endured. We know who they are. Um, we hope and we pray and we act every day to reinforce our respect for these individuals. These are indeed healthcare heroes, but without some of the other changes that we've talked about, culture will return, the negative culture of working, of feeling as though you're working in as a second-class professional, in a second-class sector that isn't properly funded, isn't properly reinvested in, isn't properly respected by government and regulatory authorities. This is draining, it's wearing on the culture inside congregate long-term care centers. And that, ladies and gentlemen, has to change. One of the final characters in this play is outcomes. And famously, what gets measured gets done. Uh, we all know this is true. Uh, clinical results are being exquisitely measured, one would say, by uh, the new standards of reporting, the new MDS categories and the other uh, regulatory standards promulgated by CMS. They're really quite good, uh, but they only look at part of the picture. The clinical results, which are fundamentally what's looked at as long-term care outcomes, is only part of the story. What about quality? Now, let's be clear. I'm not talking about a subjective perception when I talk about quality. I'm using W. Edwards Deming and Duran. I'm using a strict definition of quality, the degree to which the service is free of defects. That's, that can and should be measured, and currently it's not. Another aspect to quality has to do with perception, has to do with the subjective observation. That's called consumer satisfaction. What do consumers want? What do they need? And what do the families want and need? Now, we've already talked about the fact that families and consumers themselves often don't know what they want or need because we've done such a marvelous job of obfuscating, of making it less clear what our offerings are that people often don't know. So the bottom line is that we're not effectively measuring customer satisfaction. Hospitals have something called HCAPs, and a significant proportion of the hospitals across the United States measure the satisfaction of their consumers, their patients, their ambulatory patients. They measure it using HCAPs or one of the multiple of the dimensions of HCAPs. We don't have anything like that. Why? Again, I, I lay this squarely at the feet of lobbyists, of individuals who are advocating for this sector. We need to have consistent measures so that we begin to look at the data. We've got data that's isolated in state silos or individual community silos or individual sector silos that's not rationalized, that's not made readily available for analysts and for analysts to do things like predictive modeling. And as I've said before, if consumers don't know what they want, why aren't we teaching them? Outcomes 
my, I'm going to make a de declarative statement here. Outcomes would be measurably better if consumers had reasonable expectations, if we were managing those expectations more effectively. Finally, the economics, and this would take up a whole session on its own, but I've purposely left it to the last here. There are indirect and direct costs associated with providing congregate long-term care. And I would say categorically, and don't think it, this is, would be in dispute, the system has been shortchanged for 50 years. We have underinvested in both operations and capital investment for years. Um, the Medicaid, the system in the United States that pays for 68% of congregate long-term care, um, can't afford this system the way it's currently structured. The Medicare, the uh, program for that pays health care for the elderly, they backed out of long-term care uh, 45 years ago when they saw the demographic trends, they said, no, we can't do this, and they backed out. Now, Medicare will pay, does pay, for short-term care, but that represents a sliver of the overall uh, turnover in the long-term, congregate long-term care sector. Uh, Medicare Part C, the so-called Medicare Advantage programs, are beginning to see more traction in certain types of assisted living, uh, but overall, Medicare does not pay for uh, the services in congregate care centers. The other issue is that too many Americans think that the government will pay for long-term care. For years, my firm did the consumer survey for Phillips Lifeline. We did. I know, 35 or 40,000 surveys among consumers. And invariably, when asked about compensation, people predicted that the government would pay for long-term care. And we know that they don't or they will only in certain prescribed and limited ways. So this is a uh, collision course that's been accelerated in this story about long-term care, congregate long-term care. Private non-paid care is worth about $500 billion in the United States. That is uh, a very uh, amiable, very positive, very uh, uh, constructive data point. It's also immensely unfair. It's immensely vulnerable and needs to be addressed for overall economic recovery and for specific, uh, this epilogue toward long-term care crisis. Waste, maldistribution, lack of collaboration, and fragmentation are the major culprits inside this economic uh, problem, these economic difficulties uh, in this, this play. Economics is certainly one of the villainous characters in our long-term care story. And here's some ideas about how to uh, get what we need. First of all, we need federal insurance for long-term care. This just, it's been proposed so many times. It's always the bridesmaid, never the, bri never the bride. 
excuse me. So we definitely need uh, federal insurance for long-term care. Uh, Japan did it about 11 years ago. And if Japan, whose demographics is far worse than ours, their demographic cliff is far steeper, and their economics are far more stagflated than ours have been, uh, if they did it, we can absolutely do it. We need the political will. We need the experts to step forward and explain why this is so important. We need a small increase in the Medicare payroll deduction and a small premium means-tested progressive on parts A, C, and D in Medicare. Now, you're going to say, what? Where did that come from? The funding for the federal insurance for long-term care cannot simply be scraped over onto the backs of the working workforce that's in the prime age, uh, the prime age workforce in the United States. It won't cut it. It won't isn't cutting it currently in the UK. Yesterday, Boris Johnson proposed a major reform to social care. It's already getting appropriate blowback. It's we've got to stop nibbling around the edges and start rebuilding from the ground up. Private long-term care insurance is partially deductible now. It needs to continue to be fully deductible, although for a variety of reasons, it's never going to reach a higher penetration rate than say 11 or 12%, which was the peak uh, before COVID and before the long-term care insurance providers started to uh, fall out of the marketplace. We need to create a long-term care risk pool in each state, similar to what ACA did. And we need to require that participating health insurance providers who decide to offer federally backed insurance for long-term care, that they spend a small percentage of their premiums on education and communications to teach consumers what they need, how to get it, where they go to get it, and the difference between uh, memory loss and Alzheimer's and the difference between an unsupervised congregate care, independent living age qualified property and a nursing home, which currently consumers don't recognize this difference. And to those who say, how can we afford all of this? I'm simply going to say that I'm going to quote John Maynard Keynes, who was the economist, for those of you who don't know, who basically designed the economic system that pulled the world economy out of the mire and the, 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 the muck post-World War II. And John Maynard Keynes said, assuredly, we can afford this and much more. Anything we can actually do, we can afford. And all of the things that I've suggested here, we can actually do. And, and I believe that we actually uh, must do and stop nibbling around the edges. The next steps, well, they are to hear your questions, uh, field your questions, to begin to continue, continue the dialogue and the conversation with politicians, regulators, and leaders in the sector to uh, redesign, reimagine long-term care. So the world, uh, is the product of our thinking. We can't change the world. We can't change this system without changing our thinking. I hope this has been interesting, 
and uh, perhaps even provocative. Uh, so, and the resources are attached here. And with that, I would love to see what questions you might have. So thank you very much, Irving, for today's webinar, and thank you all for attending. So now let's open the Q&A session, see what questions we have for today. And I can't find them, please excuse me. Ah, here we are. So first one is, can you talk about the recent tragedies in Louisiana? So I think that the question has to do with the with the um, immediate and swift removal of aged and vulnerable consumers from nursing homes in the path of Hurricane Ida and the placement of these individuals in shelters. My observation about this is that two, twofold. One is I'm sure that the people who executed that evacuation, it, it, it has to be considered an emergency evacuation under duress. I'm sure that the people who did that had the best of intentions. Could it have been done better? Absolutely. There could have, would have, should have. What I would have done is I would have put an RFID bracelet on every single consumer and I would have scanned that bracelet into a database and then I would have hustled those individuals, those vulnerable individuals in their gurneys, in their wheelchairs, into the best, most suitable destinations I could find for them. But that requires planning, that requires pre-planning and just as we encountered with Sandy in Florida. We are encountering the same issue with Ida in Louisiana. This, and in New Jersey, by the way, as well. This is the result of the lack of planning and the lack of awareness around the needs of these vulnerable populations and reflects, frankly, the generally low priority that this sector, these sectors have. Uh, and I know that every politician who heard me say that will immediately get her dander up. But we are the poor stepchildren in congregate long-term care. It's just, there's just ample evidence and this is further evidence. So I don't know what else I can say about that other than to say, this is a great example of how we need technology how we need planning and how, uh, given what we know about the frequencies of these intense extreme weather events, we need to be uh, far better prepared. Thank you, Irving. And we have another question, which was, what was your reaction and the pros and cons of the announcement, announcement that US World and News Reports will be conducting surveys and publishing rankings of ILAL memory care and CCRCs. Thank you. That's a, that's a good question. I consider such rankings beauty contests. I consider such rankings um, good public relations. Let's those of you who score well in these programs 
should indeed uh, leverage them. I encourage my clients to do that all the time from a public relations uh, perception point of view, but they are fundamentally just that. They are beauty contests. They have nothing to do with the underlying issues. I, I'm sure that the system, in fact, I think I read that the system will rely in part on the CMS star rating system for long-term care centers. And we know there are flaws. There are issues with the star rating system, which could be the subject of another conversation. But this, uh, that the US News and World Report saw an opportunity in this says, why, why aren't we doing it? Why, aren't, why isn't CMS doing it? Why isn't ACHCA or AHCA or, or leading age, why isn't somebody already doing it? And I suspect it's because there's um, low priority, no funding, and the interests of the private parties, the for-profit vendors of these surveys, and I know because we are one and have been one, uh, they have argued against this or lobbied against it. And we really need systematized metrics uh, that we can use. So that's my reaction to it. Thank you. And we have some more questions now. Just let me open up my screen. So <clears throat> next question. Isn't a critical component of transformation the marriage of universal healthcare and a baseline care coordination IT nationwide a first step? Note. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm going to try and pronounce the name. Note Guandi's recent New Yorker article on Costa Rica. Okay. So I think that, so those are two very good points, but I think they're inverted. I think that the, the first thing to do is to create an IT infrastructure in long-term care. That infrastructure can and will have ripple benefits that are are and will be significant. Um, second of all, healthcare, um, you know, is a fun, there's a gray line between healthcare and congregate long-term care. There's quite a few medical services that are delivered within a congregate setting, but there are other segments of the population utilizing congregate centers that don't require uh, intense medical services. They require um, social, uh, psychological, behavioral interactions to help improve their well-being rather than med specific medical services. So um, I, I'm very familiar with Costa Rica. I've been there at least eight or nine times uh, in working with the healthcare system there. But the, I think that the, um, I think that the questioner's order of importance is inverted. I think it needs to be IoT first, the internet IT first, and then other things will follow. And this would be a great conversation. I'd love to uh, engage with you in a direct dialogue, please. Thank you. And we have time for one final question, which is currently long-term care facilities are in competition for qualified and licensed staff due to the staff shortages caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. What can long-term care facilities do to stay competitive? 
staffing agencies are offering ridiculous rates that long-term care providers cannot match due to declining census and are a major source of reimbursement, Medi-Aid. Okay, uh, what a great question. Uh, and it reminds me immediately of a famous movie called There Will Be Blood, where one oil wildcatter drilled a horizontal pipeline to another oil wildcatter's field and basically sucked all the oil out. So this is what's happening in marketplace areas and even across the country. The bonus system is what, if I were only ethically concerned about my operation, I would do what many providers are currently doing which is offering whatever it takes, including suggesting that I would take unvaccinated healthcare professionals and pay them staggering bonuses so that I would benefit from their services. Because after all, I can't deliver any services if I don't have those individuals. Those individuals are my means of production. Those of you who are old enough to remember should recall that after World War II, because labor was so short, there were actually pay restrictions, pay compensation restrictions, which is in part how health insurance became such a popular benefit because it was a non-compensatory benefit that could be added onto in order to attract workers from contiguous areas or related industries. So this is a workforce crisis. And these bonuses that are being offered is nothing short of a race to the bottom. It's irresponsible. And the best solution to this is to stop it. Absolutely stop it. And to, at the state level, to create compensation structures, ladders, caps, whatever you want to talk about. Yes, I'm talking about meddling in the free market, free labor market, because it's not free. There's a limited supply of the means of production, and these the absence of this means of production means that somebody dies or doesn't get care or has to be shipped from one state across state lines to go to another place. We wouldn't tolerate this with ICU beds. Why should we accept it when it comes to uh, market rates for workforce? So in my, that, that's my considered point of view, not my opinion, my considered point of view about workforce. There needs to be coordinated federal but state-based action to control these predatory irresponsible behaviors. How's that? Oh, that's a great note to end on. Thank you very much, Irving. And thank you all for attending today's webinar. And we hope you found it informative. Please take a moment and tell us how we did. You'll be asked to fill in a very brief survey at the end of this webinar. And this is the only way we can learn how to improve these presentations. Thank you again. Thank you again, Irving. And we look forward to seeing you at the next program. Have a great day, evening, and stay well, everyone. Thank you.